So yeah, welcome to an episode of Songs You Should Know. In this case, it's a 1950s trinity. Not the trinity, but I mean a trinity. And in this case, a trinity of uh, the beginnings of rock and roll. I'm Jimbo. And I'm the mixter. Good evening, everybody. Or wherever (laughs) you're at, it's evening somewhere. (laughs) Whatever it is. (laughs) Whatever it is. Hello to you. I'm, uh, yeah, there's no reason you should listen to me. I'm a former school teacher, internet guy, playing a couple of bands. The Mixter has a, a much more interesting job description, though. What do you, tell, tell people what you do right now. I'm currently uh, the production manager at a 800-seat Starlight Theater in lovely Branson, Missouri. I've also uh, had the privilege to... Uh, tour and uh as an audio engineer production manager road manager and have uh been on on the facility side in some major arenas uh where the miami heat play american airlines center and so i have just vast amount of stories and it's it's all been very very fun (laughs) all right well we're going to talk about uh three songs that date from the late 19, well, mid-1950s, that really helped launch rock and roll. So here's some bumps. That's right. We've got Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Elvis Presley all in this episode. That's right. And we're going to start out with something I like to call the national anthem of rock and roll. If you're five or 50, who doesn't know that riff? I don't think... Uh, Be honest. You'd, you would have to know it. Um it wasn't necessarily the first of the the three songs that we're going to go through, but it was something that that caught America's consciousness, I think. And uh, in 1955, Chuck wrote this, but it didn't come out until 1958. So it sort of spans this whole uh, initial um, birth of rock and roll time. So it was recorded in January of 1950 or January of 1958 and released in March. That was back in the days where you recorded something and you put it out right away. I think that's, that style is sort of coming back now. Well, I mean, a lot of people now, you know, are just, um, I mean, my kids play and they're like, well, yeah, you just record something, you throw it out on the internet, you know, so it goes out instantly. Well, yeah, that 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 style is coming back because <clears throat> of that ease of access to, you know, recording. I mean, yeah, we can, <clears throat> we'll have different shows where Bruce Springsteen spent five years or whatever it was on <laughs> on the river. <laughs> or, oh, sure. So. Or even on, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was recorded at Chess Studios in Chicago, the famous Chess Studios. And this song racks up an amazing two minutes and 41 seconds of bliss. <laughs> as, as my brother Jimbo would say, verse, chorus, solo, verse, chorus, get out. This is a perfect example of that. Get out of the way. Yes, exactly. And it was released both as a 7-inch single and a 10-inch 78 RPM record. This was back in the days where you could still get 10-inch RPM or 10-inch 78 RPM records. I whipped out my big 10-inch. I was just going to say that. Thank you, Stephen Tyler. (laughs) She stepped on my big (laughs) 10-inch. I looked on... uh, on eBay, and you can still get 10-inch copies of a bunch of Chuck Berry stuff for, you know, a couple hundred bucks anyway, but uh, wow. depending on the quality of the, of the of the disc, but they're they're still out there. Wow. I, I don't remember mom and dad having 10-inch. We'll, we'll talk about the 45s later, but... No, they had they had 45s. Dad had 45s, but uh, yeah. I don't remember seeing any 10-inch records there. So, yeah, so the musicians that were involved in the song were Lafayette Leek on piano. And he was a chess session musician, and he was um, fairly well known on a lot of Chuck Berry's early recordings, actually. And then I'll let you talk about the big, the big gun, 
Willie Dixon on bass. That's right. That's not a that's not a typo. Willie Dixon, the writer of Hoochie Coochie Man, I Just Want to Make Love to You, which, of course, uh, the Rolling Stones covered. He also wrote Little Red Rooster, which was a big Stones uh, standard and uh, still kind of is now and then. And uh, he is one of... Willie is... He's the rock star. He, he, he was one of the key links between blues and rock and roll. He kind of transitioned that probably without even knowing it but uh you know i mean we we'll, we'll probably end up doing a whole show about willie because he's uh willie dixon is the man he is he was something else and it's it was amazing to me in researching this that that's willie dixon on bass on there that just blows my mind yeah that's and then fred fred below on drums and um he played on a lot of hit records for you know for chess records artists and a lot of other Chicago greats, um, but he was really well known for playing with uh, Little Walter. You know, also it's, it's a big Chicago sound record, so yeah. um, it's interesting to go back and see that. Um, wow, this wasn't this wasn't just some single that came out of nowhere. There, there was a whole history of the people involved in the background of this and uh it was pretty cool yeah for two minutes and 41 seconds it was well put together you know for back in 1955 so yeah so the song peaked at number two on billboard's hot r&b sides chart and number eight on the hot 100 and i'm like what eights what seven songs were above this this song. Well, yeah, like I said, it picked the number two on the on, on the R and B. What uh, you know? Is it you know? Was it is it any of the other two songs that we're going to talk about? <laughs> should that darn yeah? You know. No, they weren't out at the same time. So it's exactly. like, well, I should have gone back and researched that. But yeah. uh, so anyway, when Rolling Stone came out with their five hundred greatest songs of all time, this song came out number seven. So Johnny Be Good, the the national anthem of rock and roll is the number seven rock and roll song of all time. However, it's the number one on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest greatest Guitar Songs of All Time. There you go. There's the riff. There's the lick. Yep. And you know what John Lennon said, right? He did. He said, if you tried to give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry. Right. So the song was... Um, Sort of autobiographical, but he changed a lot of details because um, Chuck was from St. Louis and still is from St. Louis. <laughs> he still um, is. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna us. talk we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in a little bit because Chuck still, Chuck is still with us. He's getting ready to go out on the road, man. <laughs> he's ninety years old. Um, he's from St. Louis, not, not from Louisiana, and he could certainly read and write. And I'll have you know that he graduated from beauty school with a degree in hairdressing and cosmetology. I am not kidding you. No, I believe Chuck- you. My, my bet would have been little, little Richard would have had that degree, but <laughs> how wrong was I? No, <laughs> no. Chuck could have done your hair, man. When you had hair, because you're bald. Hair. You're that's, bald now. That's, that's true. Uh, you you can't you can't see this through a podcast, but Mick is <clears throat> no. And uh, Aquanet and I, is, and I still have not come to a uh, out of court settlement yet, but that's okay. <laughs> so anyway, he uh, Chuck joined Johnny Johnson's band in 1953, and Johnny. The name, the inspiration with the name Johnny B. Good came from Johnny Johnson, who played piano for, for Chuck on all kinds of stuff. But I did find out that um, Chuck grew up on Good Street, G-O-O-D-E, with the E at the end, in St. Louis. It was formerly, it was originally called Good Street. It, it isn't now, but, uh, and who knows if the street is even there, but it was originally called Good Street. So... There you go. And then let's talk about one of our heroes, Keith Richards. He did a tribute show. And so in 1981, uh, during the filming of this, uh, Barry punched old Keith when uh, Keith went backstage to one of Chuck's shows in New York, thinking Richards was an annoying fan. And so Keith once said, I love his work, but I couldn't warm him off even if I 
was cremated next to him. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what that means. Then in 1987, uh, Richards headed up a band for the all, uh, I'm sorry, for an all-star uh, birthday party. Uh, playing with Barry at, at two shows at the fabulous Fox Theater and later re released as the film Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, which I'm sure uh, a lot of you should be familiar with. Um, I remember seeing that? I remember seeing it, but you could probably give more detail. Was Was Ronnie on that one too? Ronnie Wood? I don't, I don't remember Ronnie. Eric Clapton was on okay. there. And Paul Schieffert was like the uh, the piano player. And there are some pretty famous scenes of um, Keith and and Chuck getting into it, getting really upset with each other about sound. And, uh, you know, Chuck basically didn't let anybody tell him anything. So, oh, my computer's going off. I should have put that on silence. So, yeah, Chuck didn't let uh, anybody tell him anything about anything. Right. Really? <laughs> well, we could talk about that later with artists. But, yeah. So that was hey. a film, but but also, what other film that I love, we have a little <laughs> snippet of. Yes. Well, of course, we, we all know that there's the fictional Marvin Berry from Back to the Future who, uh, <laughs> who called he up was Chuck. Chuck's cousin. Oh, was he cousin? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. It's your cousin Marvin, yeah. <laughs> yes. I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. But your kids are going to love it. But your kids are going to love it, yes. Um, we had Michael J. Fox, <laughs> Michael J. Fox playing the song. Well, mimicking the song anyway. Although Michael could actually play guitar, but he didn't actually do it live in that movie. But uh, um, and, and I'm trying and to think who that whole, guitar teacher in that was. I used to know that at one time. But, but I forget. <laughs> hey, Chuck influenced himself because he, he went on to do some more covers of Johnny B. Good, which must tell you how important Johnny B. Good was in his life because he did Bye Bye Johnny, um, which the Stones also covered. He did Go, 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 which I don't think I've ever heard. Yeah. And Johnny B. Blues, I don't think I've ever heard. And then he, he created an entire album called Concerto in Be Good, which had a 19-minute instrumental track based around Johnny Be Good. Yep. Stuff that um, I've never heard any of those things. But um, um, Bye Bye Johnny, of course, with the Stones, I've heard that. But um, Yeah, and I don't, I don't know if I've actually heard that one. I'm going to have to go uh, Google that now. Dig that stuff YouTube out. it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and then the Beatles did a cover in uh, 1964 on the BBC radio show Saturday Club, which um, was was presented a couple of times on TV, and then not until 1994 did it come out on the Beatles Live at the BBC um, collection. So, and I wasn't yeah. aware of that either. And then, of course, everybody knows the B side to to uh, Johnny B. Good was Round and Round, and that was also a uh, Stone's standard live uh, on the El Macombo side of Love You Live and it was, I think it was a I think I've heard him play that after those that Oh, they've, they've done a number of times have, Do you have a copy of Love You Live? Have you listened to that album? Oh yeah, you, <clears throat> here's a little trivia friends <laughs> I was a huge Kiss fan until uh, I believe it was the Christmas of 77 or 78 uh, Jim, uh, I'm a huge Kiss fan. I'm 12 or 13. He bought me some girls <laughs> because he wanted it. But uh, so out of spite, I decided to listen to it. <clears throat> but shortly after that, I believe that you bought uh, because Love You Live was a, a double album. Yep. And so uh, I, I used to sneak into your room and listen to that quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. Yes, you did, because I used to leave my glasses and stuff around you, and you'd leave, oh, notes sure. on, you'd leave notes on there saying uh, the incriminating evidence. And I'm like, <laughs> I forgot about a lot oh, of yeah. that stuff. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I was 13. I get a free pass. I was, I was listening to good music, you know? Oh, man. 
So no, and then then there was this whole thing with the Elmo Cambo side. I'm like, well, what does that mean? I had no idea that the Elmo Cambo what, right. was a club, you know, right? And where they where they had previewed the the tour. Well, and then recently, there's the whole you can it they uh, released the whole all of the cuts from the Elmo Cambo side because on Love You Live it was just. Like two or three, right? It was well, it was four or five. I mean, it was round. an entire side of was a it? side. It was a side of an LP. Oh, it was. But there must have been five but, or six songs in there. Yeah, right. But now they've released like the, I think all of the recordings from El Macambo because, um, oh, I'll think of it. A song that appeared on Tattoo You they were actually doing then. Um, I'll think well, of it a, a lot of Tattoo You was was actually yeah. recorded much earlier. I mean, yeah, it was during uh, this the time. Some girls stuff. Some girls and yeah. So anyway, I did look on YouTube, and um, I had seen this thing that the uh, the opening guitar riff is sort of a, a copy of the opening solo on Louis Jordan's "Ain't That Just Like a Woman" from 1946. And I'm like, and, and there's a guitarist on there, but I'm like, oh, he must have copied some other guitar player. And I'm, and I listen to it and I go, no, he copied the horn player. So there's a single note horn solo that leads into this song. And then Chuck did the whole double stop thing, copying the same basic, you know, riff and, and, uh, and rhythm and stuff. And I'm like, wow. So yeah, he copied it, but no, he didn't because he, you know, the, the double stop guitar thing that Chuck does has become so linked to his persona and to his influence on everybody else. And I thought, wow, did he copy that somewhere else? Well, he got inspired somewhere else, I can tell you that. Wow, by a horn. There you yes. go. I mean, that's, you know, that's that that's double in parts, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't realize either, and I and I, you know, I've listened to the original single, and I thought, well, when the solos come in, there's still some rhythm guitar going on. I didn't realize that as early as as uh, you know, 1958, when they recorded this, Chuck actually had done an entire take just doing the rhythm guitar, and then they actually did do overdubs um, of his solos. Wow. And I wasn't aware of that going on a lot until the Beatles came along, which is a number, you know, a few years later. But well, um, yeah, about but no, five, Chuck Chuck later. Chuck was actually uh, overdubbing his his solos there. So see, so there you go. I didn't know that either, but it's cool. Do you remember Mom and Dad having the American Graffiti soundtrack? I was just going to say that I actually. Uh, I love that movie, and we used to get out that they, they, they had the soundtrack. I think which was on like a double LP, and uh, of course uh, Johnny B. Good was on there. Um, yes, with with some other great stuff that we were raised with. And, and then um, oh, um, what was the other one? There's another Chuck Berry on there. Almost Grown is on there. Really? Yeah, I'm doing all right in school. Yep, there was that was on there too. I'm sure that was on there. Well, I should have double checked that before I said. Yeah, that. I'm sure it was. Now we're going to get hit with lawsuits again. <laughs> All right, you got to tell the Sioux Falls, South Dakota thing, though. Well, I want to tell the Sioux Falls, South Dakota, because <laughs> what's wrong with this statement? When ACDC opened for Cheap Trick? <laughs> okay. But. In Sioux Falls, say, South Dakota. In Sioux Falls, South. Yeah, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And, and of course. We are huge. I'm huge ACDC and Cheap Trick. I, I, we'll talk about Cheap Trick in another show, trust me. But uh, on July 7, 1979, ACDC opened for Cheap Trick and the two bands joined together to play Johnny Be Good. And uh, a, a recording of this was circulated as a bootleg single and then uh, it was officially released in 2007. Yes. Now, I have to tell you, as a way of segueing out of the Chuck Berry segment, and we're going long here. We, we, we like to talk. What? Yes. <laughs> anyway, so up until 2014, so just not very long ago, Berry was still performing live at um, a club called Blueberry Hill in St. Louis. And I used to look it up on the Internet and see when he was playing and thinking – you know, we should we should take a road trip down there. And I never did that, which I regret now because I don't think he plays down there anymore. But he turned 90 last year 
he has an album coming out <laughs> this year, and it's called Chuck. And uh, the band has a couple of his kids on it. They're playing guitar and harmonica. Um, he dedicated it to his wife of 68 years. And trust me, if you know any stories about Barry's past, that woman is a saint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, for staying with this man. <laughs> anyway, her name is Th- Thameta Barry. He calls her Toddy. And his press release says, my darling, I'm growing old. I've worked on this record for a long time. Now I can hang up my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll be back in just a minute. That's right. <laughs> that is the second song in our trilogy here, in our trinity. And, uh, you know, amazingly enough, this song actually came out before Johnny Be Good. Um, and Little Richard had toiled around for a few years before he got a hold of that sound, before this this came out. And we'll talk about that pretty soon, too. But uh, um, I have to say, you know, mom and dad being from New Orleans and dad having a stack of 45s, I do remember, I don't don't remember Tutti Frutti, but I remember Dad having uh, Good Golly Miss Molly and Long Tall Sally. Yep, I, I remember and, that. Uh, and I, I didn't say during the Johnny B. Good part that um, Dad also had a copy of Maybelline from Chuck Berry. And Maybelline was Chuck's first single. I mean, that was really the, 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 the big thing that kicked off Chuck's career. And uh, Dad... If you're listening, I have Maybelline upstairs in in, in my closet. Um, <laughs> the forty five, the forty five, not, not, not the, the person. Yeah, yes. yeah, not yeah, not the person because you can't breathe in there. <laughs> no, no, I've got I've got the forty five uh, RPM record up in my closet, and uh, I, I think a lot of your records somewhere along the way got thrown out and that makes me so sad because i should have just stole the whole the whole pile yeah because that's but, i mean that's what we <laughs> i mean he had professor long hair he had all kinds of stuff from new orleans and it was just that. like oh my wow. god he also had uh i do remember blueberry hill from fat yes Stone. yep he had, one of my... had some fat stuff going on and uh and the thing about Tutti Frutti is that, okay, it's recorded in New Orleans at uh, J&M Studio. And I think Fats recorded there and, and a lot of these other artists, too. So, And Tutti Frutti weighs in at 2 minutes and 23 seconds. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> you can't get away with that anymore. <laughs> now, is, is, is Little Richard from New Orleans? I guess this, I don't know. He's from the. He's from Georgia, I think. Macon, okay. Georgia, I think. Yeah, I'd have. Oh gosh! Right. See now. Now I have to look that up again. But he recorded in 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 uh, New Orleans. I know. Um. So yeah. So it was little Richard. Richard Pennyman was his name. Is his name? He's still with but, us. Uh, <laughs> he is still with us too. <laughs> yeah, on vocals and piano, and then they had uh, Lee Allen. Now you remember the Stray Cats. And yeah. the early days of MTV and the Stray Cats strut and stuff. Lee Allen played tenor sax with the Stray Cats. Really? Years, years well, later. I remember yeah. that name. Yeah. Wow. And then he, he did a few shows. Yeah, did years a few later. Shows. He did a few shows with the Stones, too, in 1981, in the 81 tour. I've, he must have been filling in. He did, like, three shows. Hmm. So. And then um, Alvin Red Tyler on baritone sax, who played on Fats Domino's first recording. And then some other guys that I'm afraid that I, I don't have much reference for. You know, Frank Fields was on bass, Earl Palmer on drums, Justin Adams on guitar. But um, the song went on to quite, <laughs> it ignited a fire. I think that whole a wop a loo bump thing. That's right. You know, 
it, it, it gave a phrase to people to define this new rock and roll thing going. That's right. What does that even mean and how do you yes. spell it? I mean. <laughs> yeah, and Little Richard was fond of saying, you know, and other people were fond of saying that you don't even have to say words to have meaning. You just have to, to have the excitement and the, you know, the, the guttural utterances right. coming behind you, you know, so. So, yeah, so Rolling Stone magazine declared that the song still contains what has to be considered the most inspired rock and roll lyric ever recorded. A wop bop a loo bop a wop bam boom. Which, if you listen to that thing at the beginning, I'm going to play it again here. He doesn't say that. He says it later, but he doesn't say that at the beginning of the song. Here it is. Yeah. You hear a lomp, bomb, bomp. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, later he does say a lot, bam, boom, in which and Elvis's recording of it, I think, is all that he says in between the verses. He does that over and over again. But uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so tutti frutti. Now, what does it mean? Hmm. Among other things, was slang for a gay male. So... Well, and Little Richard went through quite a period in his life where he was a very, um, hmm, he was a very out there dude. Flamboyant. (laughs) Flamboyant. And he also went through a period where he was very spiritual and had denied all that. But um, yeah, Tutti Frutti was slang for a gay male. And um, this was a song that he would play live before they ever recorded this that had very salacious lyrics to it. All right. You know. Tutti Frutti, Good Booty. And uh, he was talking about making things greasy and sliding it in easy. I mean, it was a, it was a, um, it was a very risque, risque thing, especially for the, for the 1950s. Well, yeah. You know, for here's this flamboyant um, African-American gentleman from the deep south who was so pretty. (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I mean, think about that you know 1954 he's very flamboyant there was still segregation happening and and he's talking <laughs> he's talking about and but but that's the cool thing about music is you know when we were young so i mean i was probably you know 12 or 10 and you're a couple years older the thing that i, I want to say about listening to chuck berry or any of those records uh little richard i didn't know that they were black or white and i didn't really care well that's that's kind of a cool segue when we get into elvis here coming up one of the things that sam phillips liked was he was a white guy that sounded like the black guys right you know he sounded like he was an african-american well and, and 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 that was a cool thing being a kid listening to music unlike now is you know we we don't have instant media all we had was the 45s and we didn't have a lot of photos so we didn't know what they looked like and you know I didn't know what they looked like and you know I mean after a while you, you knew Elvis was white but you know I, I I would listen to 45s and records and I'm like man and then you would see what that person looked like and I'm like I had no idea <laughs> exactly Which, I love the fact that, okay, so, who comes along and covers Tutti Frutti? It's Pat Boone. (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) Pat Boone had covered Ain't That a Shame by, you know, Fats Domino and had a big hit with it. And Pat Boone was kind of the darling, you know, of, of, uh, I suppose, the white establishment of of, um, pop music. And uh, so he, <laughs> they had him record Tutti Frutti and, and to the, you know, Pat's comments on this were like, he had no idea what the song was about. Why <laughs> should he record this? What does this mean? But, it, you know, he was being paid well and he was doing his gig. So he did it. And uh, the irony is that his song reaches number 12 on the national pop charts and Little Richard reached number 17. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that picture? You know? And of course of of this, you know, Little Richard said, the white kids would have the Pat Boone up up on the dresser and they had me in the drawer because they liked my version better, but the families didn't want me because of the image that I was projecting. 
Exactly. There you go. <laughs> and then, then Elvis covered it on like his first album, I think. I mean, right away, because Elvis broke big in 56. And, um, and this came out in 55, and Elvis recorded it. And uh, Little Richard said, Elvis may be the king of rock and roll, but I'm the queen. <laughs> 1956. <laughs> now, I've, I've seen that variously repeated as I'm the king and queen, but um, he did include uh, the queen part in there. So, which leads us into queen. <laughs> queen. <laughs> covered, covered by queen in 1986 at Wembley Stadium. It's on YouTube. The, the it's internet on YouTube. Doesn't, it's, it's, the internet doesn't lie. Yes, the internet doesn't lie. You go look it up. Uh, Queen, Wembley Stadium, um, Tutti Frutti. And uh, the interesting thing is that, okay, it's a fairly stripped down version. It's not quite um, acoustic, but like uh, the only drums are really just tambourine. And then you got Brian May doing guitar and Deacon on bass and Freddie Mercury going, Oh, darlings, I forgot the words or something like that. And <laughs> then ripping ripping into it and then doing the whole song, which it turns out to be really good. But um, <laughs> I haven't seen it, so No, I looked it up today. I, I'm like, oh, it's legit. That was really there. And then of course we got David Bowie. The late David Bowie. Yes, unfortunately. So his his dad ran a London music hall, and he brought the record home, and David was nine years old. What did David Bowie say? My heart nearly burst with excitement. I heard God. That was wow. from hearing Tutti Frutti. So yeah. <laughs> there's a direct link between Little Richard and David Bowie. <laughs> and God. <laughs> and God. So, <laughs> so, so there you go. So, of course, uh, I'm sure you can fix this, but Little Richard wrote this song in 1955 when he was working as a dishwasher at a Greyhound bus station in his hometown of Macon, Georgia. So that's where he's from. That's where he's from, yeah. Yep. And so in Italian, tutti frutti means all fruit which was a popular flavor of ice cream uh, with candied fruit bits, candied fruit bits. Yeah. So it was the last song for his album that he recorded. And it barely made it. The first eight tracks he put down were blues numbers, which um, Bumps Blackwell, who was his producer, wasn't really wowed by that. And they took a break and he brought Richard to a local bar called the Dew Drop Inn. And Richard was feeling more relaxed with an audience to play for. He sat down at the piano in the bar and started playing his live favorite, Tutti Frutti. That got Blackwell's attention. And he insisted that Richard record the song, but the original racy lyrics about good booty and everything, that was not going to play on the radio. And little Richard mm, either didn't have the talent or didn't have the interest in trying to rewrite the lyrics. So there was somebody named Dorothy Labostri, who Blackwell described as a girl who kept hanging around the studio to sell songs. She was on hand because Richard recorded her song, I'm Just a Lonely Guy, earlier that day. So time was running out on the session, and an embarrassed Richard sang her the raunchy lyrics looking at the wall while he did so. The Bowstree left and came back with the sanitized lyrics. <laughs> not the not the, the Pat Boone sanitized lyrics, but the little Richard sanitized lyrics, because it had to be sanitized again for Pat Boone. Anyway, she came back with the lyrics, and there were just 15 minutes of studio time remaining. They quickly recorded the song, getting it right on the third take with two minutes to spare. And she got, Dorothy Labustri did, she got a, a very lucrative songwriting credit. On that song, Can you imagine that. So does that mean? I'm, well, so here's my question. Got, then I mean, that's did she come up with a wop babaluba? No, that was a that was a little Richard thing that okay, he would that was say. His, even even when he was working doing dishes, and the boss would come in and throw a bunch of shit at him, he would uh, he would he would sort of um, work his way through nonsense lyrics to avoid yelling at somebody. <laughs> Maybe I should learn that trick. 
So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so she got a writing credit and probably, I mean, that... I mean, I would I would think that having a writing credit on Tutti Frutti for how many times it was recorded and re-recorded as Little Richard went through his career, she, she must have got money. some she got some pretty good you know compensation out of that deal, and that was all for hanging around um, and being very persistent at that studio. So, so yeah, that was J and M Studios in New Orleans, which in New Orleans was the only place to record for a lot of years. So that was in the late 40s. It opened up. Ray Charles was there. Sam Cooke, Jerry Lee Lewis. And then, you know what it is now? Or what it became? Because I don't think it's there anymore. Uh, it, be- it became a laundromat. <laughs> it did. It did. Because <laughs> that's what we do with historic places, you know. Yeah. We turn them into laundromats. Yeah. That makes total sense. <laughs> right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be back in just a minute. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street, that heartbreak hotel. It's a lonely baby Well I'm so lonely I'll be so lonely I could die Yeah, guess how long that song was Well, keeping keeping in line with the 1950s That's two minutes and eight seconds long (laughs) Two minutes and eight seconds I mean, it barely cleared two minutes Can you believe that? <laughs> okay, so Elvis had recorded it at Sun Studios in Memphis, and then Sam Phillips sold his contract to RCA, and Elvis goes over to Nashville, and the f- first thing he records is Heartbreak Hotel. Anyway, um, so he goes to RCA Studios in Nashville, and he records um, Heartbreak Hotel. And um, okay, so I've been to RCA Studios. I was chaperoning a trip with uh, some choir students from. Minnesota here. And I went out and I got to see the RCA studios where he recorded. And uh, you think of a recording studio as being all these booths, you know, where people are like really isolated and stuff. This this is like a big open room with a big window in it and a lot of flexibility, you know. And, um, and, and so Elvis records there in 1956, January of 1956. And again, this song was released in both 10-inch and 7-inch formats. And it's written by May Boren Axton, a, a woman, and Thomas Durden. And Elvis Presley gets a third credit on the song and a third of the royalties. And the, the story's a little mixed because it's like, well, either she offered him that in order for him to make it the first single on the record... Or she was sort of coerced into into letting their big news star have this writing credit. So anyway, she she had to you know she got a third credit instead of half the credit for the song. But you know what the the famous Sun Sun Studio sound was? You know what that sounded like? Uh, a lot of reverb. Yeah, and the reverb that Sam Phillips got was from two different tape machines and a slight delay between them. It was different recording heads that... So it had nothing to do with the room. (laughs) It had nothing to do with the room. It was actually a a physical thing. Right. Now, Elvis didn't know that, and they went to to RCA, and the RCA engineers didn't know that. So they they went out into a hallway and decided, well, we'll we'll place a, a speaker down on one end and a microphone on the other, and we'll get this big reverb here, and we'll mix that in. And so <laughs> that was one of the technical problems with the song. Two minutes and eight seconds. We got a lot of technical technical problems going on because when they mix that in, it's like, well, nobody knows what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> and then what yeah, what what's the other problem with trying to record Elvis? <laughs> His hips well, get in the way. <laughs> well, Elvis doesn't sit still, you know. You know, RCA is like, well. Here, here's the mic. We've got you set up perfectly. Sing into this. And Elvis is like, I got, he moves around. His head yeah. keeps going. And they keep losing his voice. 
<laughs> and so they, instead of trying to change Elvis, they re the room with different mics around him so that they could try to capture <laughs> capture everything and not lose him as he kept shaking around. So we, so we end up with this recording that is like, you know, it was like Elvis's version of Exile on Main Street, a big muddy mess. Yeah, it was a big, a, 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 a big recording. I don't know. I guess uh, you know it was a, the first of its kind. I mean, they they were doing some new techniques. <laughs> oh, we w- we wouldn't call it a mess yeah. nowadays, but for what they were used to, right? They thought, oh my God, what what is going on here? So, so. And his backing band, of course, was... And Scotty Moore on guitar, uh, Bill Black on bass, DJ Fontana on drums, and here here come the two kickers, kids. Chet Atkins played guitar, and if you remember uh, any commercials from the probably the 70s, Floyd Kramer is playing piano. <laughs> I can't. It the the thing for me was that Chet Atkins played guitar yeah. on Heartbreak Hotel. That just that just blew me away. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I compare it to like Eddie Van when Eddie Van Halen played the solo on Beat It. So I mean, it's right. kind of nobody nobody would have seen that coming. They're no. like, oh you know? yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it makes sense, but right at the time, you're like, really? Yeah. There you go, Chet. Yes. And then, you know, here, of all things, this muddy song that so many people were, oh my gosh, they just thought it was a muddy mess. This song reached the top five of the country and western chart, the pop chart, and the rhythm and blues charts simultaneously. Now, try to do that today. Can you imagine somebody going top five country, pop, right, and R&B? Yeah, I mean, you know, all at the same time. I mean, even, uh, you know, for as great as, uh, uh, what's her name, Swift? (laughs) (laughs) Taylor? That Swift? (laughs) That Swift. (laughs) I don't think she's top that, so there. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, uh, it was quite an accomplishment, you know, so... So, yeah, so so people wonder, where do the lyrics come from? Where did the story come from? Uh, it's a newspaper article about the suicide of a lonely man who jumped from a hotel uh, window, uh, inspired the lyrics. So uh, he was, according to the suicide note, at the end of a lonely street. So, uh, you know, Axon was affected by this uh, and, you know, wonder in if instead of taking your own life, what if there was a hotel at the end of Lonely Street where you could just go to recover from the heartbreak rather than, you know, going the uh, the other way. And um, a lot of people she talked to considered it too morbid and, you know, an unworkable, uh, an idea in 1956. Well, she tried to get some other people to help her out, you know, some other songwriters. And they're like, oh, this is this is dark stuff. <laughs> that's not that's not what we write. <laughs> yeah, we're, now, we're all about happy did, stuff. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, well, I mean, I should, but I, I mean, I was around at the time. But in 1979, Willie Nelson and Leon Russell recorded a duet of "Heartbreak Hotel" wow. that they got a number one on the country charts, and it's the only time Leon Russell, who also passed away not too long ago, too it's the only time ago. only time Leon Russell had a number one hit. Really? And I, yes. I don't believe I've heard that. So, yeah, no, well, I'm not you know, familiar with that. <laughs> you start you start reading up on this stuff, and you go, "Oh my, I did <laughs> not know that." It's how much music is out there, you know? So <laughs> that's why you need to know some of these. Wow. You want to take John Lennon or Keith Richards? I do. Well, I want to take Keith. <laughs> All right. Well, then I'll take John. All right. So John Lennon said, "When I first heard, well, I'm not going to try to imitate him or anything." <laughs> Good. When I first, when I first heard, no, I'm not going to do that. When I first heard Heartbreak Hotel, I could, (laughs) I could hardly make out what was being said. It was just the, damn it, computer. Uh Oh, (laughs) it keeps binging on my side. I got to put it into silent mode. I got to stop that. All right. Bring in the machine that goes, bing. This will be cut out. Um, 
John Lennon said, When I first heard Heartbreak Hotel, I could hardly make out what was being said. It was just the experience of hearing it and having my hair stand on end. We'd never heard American voices singing like that. They always sang like Sinatra, or enunciate very well. Suddenly, there's this hillbilly hiccuping on tape echo and all this bluesy stuff going on. And we didn't know what Elvis was singing about. It took us a long time to work out what was going on. To us, it just sounded as a noise that was great. (laughs) And then, of course, our buddy Keith Richards said, Then, since my baby left me, it was just the sound. That was the first rock and roll I heard. It was a totally different way of delivering a song, a totally different sound, stripped down, no bullshit, no violins, and ladies' choruses and schmaltz, totally different. It was bare right to the roots that that you had a feeling were there, but hadn't heard yet. I've got to take my hat off to Elvis. The silence is your canvas, that's your frame, that's what you work on. Don't try to deafen it out. That's what Heartbreak Hotel did to me. It was the first time I'd heard something so stark. Exactly. <laughs> and so we all remember the famous the famous Arsenio Hall show. Yes. Woo hoo. <laughs> where 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 uh <laughs> I don't think he was president yet. President to be or was he president yet? Bill Clinton. I think he was still candidate Clinton. Yeah, I don't think he was. Yeah. Because why would president go on there? I think it was a... Anyway, he goes on to the Arsenio Hall song and he plays Heartbreak Hotel on the saxophone. Do you remember that? Did I you might ever remember that? something. Uh, apparently, for some reason, I, I think I've seen clips of it. So, apparently. Well, yeah, probably. I mean, he had he had shades on and stuff. He was, he was trying to look... Cool. I think I remember seeing it after the fact. I don't remember seeing it uh, live. Sure. So, many people involved in producing, writing, and publicizing the song thought it was muddy and almost unlistenable. It went on to become the top single of 1956. Starting the long train of, of um, the rock and roll history of songs that nobody will ever listen to this, and then it becomes the biggest thing ever. Okay? Think Umbop, Okay. which I love, but I mean, it's like nobody saw that coming. (laughs) Nobody saw that coming. Well, no, and you know, I mean, let's look at, if we look at Heartbreak Hotel, it's not a happy song. It, you know, and, but I think, you know, me, me listening to it, it's not happy, but the, the, uh, the messiness of how it was recorded makes the song you know i'm with keith on this one it 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 definitely sets the tone for me i mean it 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 helps me get into that blue (laughs) feeling well i mean it was it was actually what it's the crossover point between blues and rock and roll okay true where you know the songs of sadness and and hurt in your heart and everything else crossed over into this pop realm that was very shiny, Pat Booney, and uh, could suddenly become very real. And I think that was an echo that was heard later when punk rock, you know, came out after things had become very glossed over again. And then we went back to, let's take the shine off and let's let's get real here. And um so I think 1956, that was a big deal. That was a, a, a big crossover time, and Heartbreak Hotel was a big part of that. And, you know, Chuck Berry and Little Richard were a big part, big part of that. It was just, let's cross this threshold and, and get over here. So, Well, yeah, I mean, it was the, it, just, just like you said, I mean, these three songs are all anthems, but they're also, you know, not about, <laughs> they're not really, any of them are all, are about, you know, white, good old, happy pop culture. <laughs> Let's look at them. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, 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 uh, right. it's that, it's that crossover. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back and have a little bit of trivia and ride on out of here. Citizens 
It's time for a little bit of trivia before we get out of here. And because ACDC was mentioned during the show, we obviously have three ACDC because it's a, it's a Trinity show, you know. We have three right. ACDC AC trivia facts for you. So my question for you, Mick, was, okay, so Highway to Hell came out. And I remember buying the album and listening to that. It was my first introduction to ACDC. And I thought it was all about descending into drug and alcohol addiction and everything else. But it turns out it had more a more nuanced meaning to it. It did. And, uh, you know, because I, I remember when you had bought that and it's like, you know, so everybody, all of our friends were singing, you know, we're going to go party and we're going to hell. <clears throat> when actually most of the meaning comes from touring <laughs> as, exactly. as, as now that i'm uh getting up in uh, age touring <laughs> can be hell and uh <laughs> so and I, I do believe that uh angus and uh malcolm did write that about you can help me out here i think it was when they were touring australia as a matter of fact cause it was still yeah i think i think that was that was an uh there was an uh, australian tour that really was the highway to hell and uh, it's and that was it was brutal on the boys i mean you know they're they were still pretty young yet so and uh how about the name acdc <laughs> this kills me <laughs> I can see I have a picture in my mind but go ahead and tell everybody no I mean people are like ACDC you know and you, you see people got their horn fingers out and everything it's like it was it was something from a sewing machine okay the sewing machine was AC and DC yeah. Malcolm and, worked in a bra factory as a sewing machine mechanic yes <laughs> I want that gig <laughs> I mean, I love the fact that Malcolm worked in a bra factory. I mean, I think that's really cool. But but yes, so the whole name comes from seeing over and over again on the side of the sewing machines, AC, DC. It works both ways. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> and then somehow we, we construe that into that means just headbang and you know. Oh yes. Put up the pointed put up the pointed fingers and letter buck. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to plug uh songsyoushouldknow.com. You can go there to find out more about this episode and others. And then hey, we don't make this stuff up. We have the entire internet. Believe it or not. <laughs> at our, we we have the That's entire true. internet at our disposal, just like you do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, you know. Wikipedia, check it out. Songfacts.com, check it out. Or just Google it, because trust me, it's out there. But you can add your own twist to it and your own stories to it, because this is the soundtrack of our lives. All right. Thank you, everybody.